So according to this stunning piece of advertising, I was stunned when I saw it. Um, we're going to be hanging together. So I, I think that what, that what that means is you kind of, if you just kind of put your arm on the back of your chair and you just kind of slouch forward a little bit, I think. I think that's hanging. I don't know. Are you, are you cool to hang? All right. Well, I, I didn't bring the climbing gear, so, uh, <laughs> so we're going to just hang, okay? All right. Okay. I'll do my best too. Um, but while we're hanging... Uh, we can just think about, it's nice to think about nice things while we're hanging. So we're going to think about heaven. Today we're actually starting at the end of the story and then we're working to the, be- to the beginning. But, you know, heaven, the end, uh, which we all hope is going to be where we will find ourselves, is the new heaven and the new earth. And what that what we're told in the description of heaven is that it's, there's going to, the walls are going to be covered with every kind of precious jewel. There will be streets of gold. There's a river running through it. And it's kind of like this city. It's the city of God. And, and on either side of the river, there are trees that are fruit-bearing trees. And you pick the leaves off them and they have healing properties. And... It's actually a place where sun, moon, and stars are not needed anymore because actually the light of God is what provides all the light that we need in heaven. So no more sun, moon, and stars. We have God right there with us providing the light that we need. Kind of like a recreation of the Garden of Eden, but bigger. It's city-like. And I'm going to read to you a description, a further description from Revelation 21 which describes a bit more about something of heaven. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, that's quite an interesting thing because some of us imagine heaven in the sky somewhere there. But actually, the Bible tells us here that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So heaven is actually a new earth. It's, it's, it's things coming out of the sky, really, and, and everything as we know it is going to be new and newly created. And the earth is going to be new, and that's going to be heaven. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying... Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And these are the parts we like to hear, which is what happens when God is dwelling with us. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And at the end of the world, there's also going to be a huge party going on. Why? 
because it's Jesus' wedding day and we get to celebrate and rejoice because Jesus is ready to accept his bride and he's waiting for his bride to present herself as ready. We are his bride. We, the church, are his bride. And we, the church, will be presented to Jesus in all beauty and purity, which was won for us by Jesus himself. A beautiful picture. Isn't it a beautiful picture? Now, there is a little motif, a little theme that runs in that picture. And I'm going to see if you can guess what it is, because it's actually something that's familiar to us. We've read it in the Bible, echoing again and again and again. See if you can guess what it is. God said to Abraham that his everlasting covenant with Abraham was, I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. A little later, he says to Moses, after he's given Moses some instructions of how the people should live because he's shaping his people to be a people set apart, he says, do these things that I'm telling you so that you are identifiable as my people and so that I can dwell amongst you and be your God and they will know that I am the Lord your God. Three times the prophet Jeremiah was permitted by God to interrupt his warnings to Israel about how they should be changing their ways with a little glimpse of God's dreams for them. There will be a time, God says, when I will gather my people and they will have hearts to know me, know that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God because they will return to me with all of their heart. Four times, Ezekiel, who was the prophet who saw into a future age, says that he sees this time where people are no longer sinfully backsliding, that they've been saved from that and cleansed, and that there is this sense that they are God's people, and he is their God. And Zechariah, says God will bring his people back to where they will be his people and he will be their faithful and righteous God. Have you guessed the message? <laughs> I will be their God and they will be my people. That's God's perfect picture for the end. And the Jewish people understood that, that when that happened, that was the end of the world, where God would be sovereign and they would be his people. Now, when would that happen exactly? Well, Messiah would usher in that final age. And so when Messiah came, he would be, according to Isaiah, a man, and he would have the mantle of government on his shoulders, so he would be in some kind of power, and he would be a wonderful counsellor, a prince that brings peace. At the same time, he would also actually be the mighty God, 
and the everlasting Father. That is Messiah. He would set captives free. He would let the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. And he would usher in this new era of God's favor on his people. And finally, he would conquer all of God's enemies and the enemies of God's people. That's what Messiah would do. Well, we know Messiah did arrive Jesus did arrive, but Jesus was a bit of an unexpected package for the expected Messiah. He was from the humblest of beginnings, so to any spectator from their perspective, he was from Nazareth, and it was once said of Nazareth, what good can come from Nazareth? And he uh, didn't exactly hang out like we're hanging out with the elite of the society which in the Jewish society would have been the religious leaders and priests nor did he hang out with kings and queens he actually worked for a living and he uh, worked in the community with timber he was a tradie and he was part of society and the community and So he just did appear like another regular guy, really, to the outside person. And he did have some radical things to say. And those did cause divisions amongst people. Really, divisions between those who believed him and those who didn't. Um, He knew his Bible really well. And he did speak with a strangely attractive kind of authority when he spoke. And he was able to perform miracles. He was a leader type of person, and so he did actually seem to attract a gathering of people where he went, without, seemingly without trying. But, you know, he really was not living a very glamorous life. There was nothing very glamorous about him at all. There, there were no riches, there were no palaces, there were no friends in high places. And then... Finally, he said some things that really upset the people in power and they sentenced him to crucifixion and they couldn't really find a crime, but he was crucified. And then, after this mocked and beaten human being had been thoroughly dead, 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 for three days, he came alive again. And that changed everything because this man Jesus showed that he had mastery over life and death no earthly man has mastery over life and death and so suddenly we have to take a closer look at what he said. The fact that he has mastery over life and death means that maybe what he taught, which was that he was God and that he came to bring the kingdom and to show us what God was like, maybe we needed to have a closer look at that. And so there was some, after he was found to be alive again, walking and talking amongst his people, 
there was some real rewiring of brains that had to go on there because suddenly we could not just say, oh, well, he was just an, you know, a good man saying some pretty radical things and doing the occasional miracle. Um, he was a man who had mastery over life and death. And so what he said had to have something to it. So if I could just call up my volunteers now. So if that Messiah was meant to usher in God's dream of being our God and us being his people, let's take a look at what Jesus did say while he was on our earth. He prayed this really powerful prayer. He said in John 17, you can read the whole prayer, but part of that prayer is now, Father, and he prayed this just before he died, Bring me into the glory that we shared before the world began. So here's how this works. I'm going to give a little bit of an illustration here. So we start with the Trinity. So if we could just have the Trinity over here, thank you. And the Trinity is um, basically, um, you know, a long, 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 long time ago is when they existed. Before we even were a thought or before the world even existed, there was this trinity. And they dwelt in this indescribable glory and oneness. Can you see how happy they are? They all, <laughs> they, there's lots of love in here. And there's this incredible unity amongst them. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But there was this great sense of, um, of overflow of love and unity within this unit. That really, it overflowed to the extent that they wanted to share it with a creation. And so they did. And so we were created. And so they opened up their space to include us into their whole. Thank you. And so there we come, our, the creation, and we found ourselves actually included in the circle with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in that prayer that Jesus prays um, in John 17, take a listen to this because this is Jesus on earth praying this. I'm praying not only for those disciples, but for you, for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me. Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Jesus wants us to experience that same oneness and unity in the church that he experiences in that Godhead with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy, well, the Holy Spirit. And so what he does then is he enables us to be able to experience that oneness he got, his prayer goes on. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you've given to me to be with me where I am 
then they can uh, see the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do, and these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. So we'll just ignore the text message that Kirk got on his phone while he was reading that. <laughs> so, okay. So then what we had, what happened was, <laughs> um, we had the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sat down because their job is done, remaining as a whole, and the church comes together as one. And so because of the unity and the love and the wholeness of the Father, the church, and this is Jesus' prayer for us, finds that same unity and love and connectedness that is within the Trinity. Creation began like this. Creation began in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and God dwelling with Adam and Eve. A lot of stuff has since happened, but the end of the world is that we will dwell again like this with God and God will be his people. Amen. Yeah, thank you. Give them a hand. You guys are great actors. Where we find ourselves now is that in-between stage, which we at the Vineyard like to call the now and the not yet. Jesus, the Messiah, has come. And he did. He dwelt with his people. And while he was here, he demonstrated the kingdom. And he demonstrated how we access the kingdom. And he demonstrated what God is like. But once again, a pattern of history, he was rejected by his own people. Paul the Apostle writes this, is that the God of this age, and that's God with a small letter, and that's Satan, has blinded unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of Jesus. And that's where we're living at the moment. But Messiah came and he, he lifted that veil so that we actually can see and we can wake from our slumber and we can see the reality that he's brought us, that we are adopted into God's family and that we are, we are part of the power of this coming kingdom. For now, though, Satan still has a playground because there are still people on this earth that give him the authority to play. And so we will find ourselves frequently confronted with evil. It is Satan's desire to destroy the church. But Jesus knew that that would happen. And we read in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, some things that Jesus warned us about. He said, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And he wanted us to know this because he wanted us not to be surprised by it. And he told us that we would experience on this earth the same rejection that he experienced. The difference is that he died for us. So we have been freed from the hold that the God of this age has on us because of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
And for those who follow Jesus, he's also given us his authority to exercise on this earth. And he's also given us in this troubled time to his Holy Spirit. He left a part of himself with us. His Holy Spirit, who is our coach and our guide and who helps us to navigate trouble on this earth with integrity and knowing that the victory is coming. Now, for those of you who have read Revelation, the book of Revelation, it's a nice little meaty book to get into, but that gives us a lot more detail about what these end times are going to look like here on earth. It tells about some great satanic powers that are going to be at work in the end times. And it prophesies, and it's a very symbolic book, so we've got to look at all the symbols of it, about these things that are going to happen before the end of the world comes. Signs to us. It talks about the beast, who is Satan. It talks about the dragon, which is a false religion and a state power. And it talks about the prostitute, which is nations that have sold their souls to, for wealth and power. And these intimidating beings are going to be operating on the earth and they will have lots of power and they will do much harm. But God is actively at war with Satan. And so God in this time sends angels to perform judgments on the earth to demonstrate that he is God. And so we get the earth almost literally being shaken to its core. Earthquakes, fire, hail, lightning, things that kill whole sections of the earth at a time. We get water turning to blood or being poisoned so that people die from it. We get locusts torturing people. We get strange signs like a black sun and a red moon and stars plummeting to the earth. These are scary things, but Revelation is written as an encouragement to our church, to the church, to be expecting these things. That when we see these strange and wicked things happening and terrible things happening, that it's a sign that the victorious part is about to come. That God's, and, and, and actually in that tribulation, in that time, there, there are judgments where God's people are sealed, like in the Passover, so that they're actually not afflicted by the things that afflict the people on earth. God looks after his people, and it's in this time, in this war, that he starts to take vengeance on all things and powers that have spilt the blood of his people. And so, justice starts to be served by a holy God. In all of this, it remains very clear that even in the trouble, God is sovereign. And we hear, see glimpses of believers that have completed their earthly existence that are actually dwelling with God in a joy-filled, light-filled, harmonious environment with God where they are delighted to be His people and God is delighted to be their God. And God is saying to us through Revelation, hold out to the end because... Victory is coming. My favorite part of Revelation, though, is when the rider on the white horse appears 
And I'm going to read that to you. Revelation 19, 11 to 18. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. That's the Holy Spirit. And on his head are many crowns. That's symbolic of being a glorious king. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. That represents his sacrifice. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, we're told in other parts of Revelation that they number thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. That symbolizes purity. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, symbolizing the word of God which has power to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Do you know that God is so angry at the mistreatment of his people? He is so angry at how sin is, has been allowed to flourish and hurt things and damage things. And so it is right that a holy God gets furious about things that oppose love and the harmony that he intended for this earth. And so that's the fury that we see God coming out of the rider on the white horse. On his robe and on his thigh, that's the place of covenant, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Prime Minister of Prime Ministers, President of Presidents, Sheikh of Sheikhs, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus. Jesus ain't no longer a baby in a manger. <laughs> Jesus is not anymore the human spat upon and beaten Jesus that we saw going to the cross. Jesus is the risen king come to take his kingdom back. And why? Because he loves his bride. I can just imagine him charging into the battle going, I want my bride. <laughs> He's passionate about us. He's passionate about dwelling with us and being with us in intimacy. When he was still on earth, he knew this was all coming. And he says, in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I get excited when I, <laughs> when I read that stuff. I need that stuff. I don't know about you, I need to hear that stuff sometimes. And that application for now is this. It's also echoed in something else that Jesus prayed for us in that John 17 prayer. Father, they do not belong in this world any more than I do. 
Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. The Godhead has done everything that they need to do to invite us into that place of unity and love and communion with them. And now the question remains is how we as his bride will respond. How do we want to look for him? Our capacity to actually dwell with God began the moment we chose to partner with Jesus. We as the church are a chosen people, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that we may declare the goodness of Jesus and how he's brought us out of darkness and into his amazing light. So let's agree with the prayer of Jesus that's been prayed over us. Let's operate in unity just as the Trinity operates in unity. The early church apostles, Peter, Paul, John, they really urged the churches to live in a way that reflects who we really are, the bride of Christ. Colossians 3, 1 Peter 2, Ephesians 4. The message is pretty much the same. Guys, let's live in the perspective of eternity. Let's get our hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And the fact that he is seated means it is finished. The job is done. All has been done. And let's get our minds on things above because our lives are now hidden in Christ and we have the mind of Christ accessible to us. And when he appears in glory, we will also appear in glory. So let's, church, put to death all of those things that we know war with our soul, that are part of our earthly identity You know those personal things that we're all tempted by all the time. Those personal sins, greediness and sexual immorality and lying and gossip and futile thinking and stealing and all those things that, you know, they kind of just slip in somewhere. Let's just deal with those radically and put them to death. And let's take off our old self and let's, you know, that old self that had no spiritual freedom and let's put on the new self, which is that we are a chosen people and a holy nation. Let's put that identity on and be his pure and holy bride so that he can come on that wedding day and he can swoop us off our feet and carry us over the threshold into the new heaven and the new earth with great joy. Let's learn to live in that same unity as the Trinity. And what that might look like, we just say unity, what does that look like? Well, let's show proper respect to others. So, you know, wives, honour your husbands. Husbands, honour your wives. Children, honour your parents. Workers, honour your bosses. 
citizens submit to the authorities. And more than that, let's not just be respectful of each other. Let's actually love each other. Let's clothe ourselves with that beautiful wedding gown of compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility and patience. Those are beautiful to Jesus. And let's let's not hold on to grudges and offenses and feuds but rather let's work towards the oneness that Jesus is praying that we would have with one another. And let's forgive each other, just as Jesus has forgiven us. And then, of course, let's not forget the good stuff. Let's celebrate that we are loved by Jesus. That he has gone to war for us, that he has died for us, he has conquered death for us, he's made a place for us in heaven. And let's just celebrate that by being thankful people, by bringing peace wherever we go, by teaching one another in love, by singing songs together in the spirit. Anything and everything we do no matter how menial that is or how important that is, let's do it as though we're doing it for our bridegroom, Jesus. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 15, for we are the temple of the living God. And here it comes again, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So just to close, we are the church. There's a song in that somewhere. We are God's church, the light of the world. We are his bride, his treasured possession. And we're living in an era where Jesus, the rider on the white horse, has begun the work of Messiah and is making everything new. Jesus is coming again, and it may be tomorrow. (laughs) The time will come when all that God has dreamed of will be fulfilled. He will be our God, and we will be his people who dwell in his light with no darkness remaining. That's our future, and it's already begun. We're just going to wait and hear what the Spirit says now. Because I think he's been talking to us. I feel like he was talking to me a lot while I was thinking around these things. And there's something in Revelation that says, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. If you're thirsty, the invitation is for you. If you're thirsty to be in that place of unity with God, Or if you're hearing something in your spirit today of God calling you to something, the spirit and the bride say, come. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you now um, to just come and 
talk to us. I was really amazed at how um, the worship this morning was so much on the same wavelength as what I was thinking as well. And I just really felt the Holy Spirit is, is bringing a message through today. And, you know, we sang, we will wait for you. We will wait for you. And there was even in the worship, there was almost an emphasis on that as we dwelt on that line, I will wait for you. And maybe there's some of you at the moment that have just been feeling, I am tired of waiting. The rider on the white horse, who is faithful and true, says, hold on, hold on, victory is coming. How great is our God, we sang. The lion and the lamb, the sacrificial one and the rider on the white horse. The lion and the lamb. He is coming. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you need that prayed over you today, I think. How great is our God. He wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide. So we say, darkness, get out of this building because this is the building of our risen king. And this is the place where light dwells. And we will take that out into our community. And we will show the risen King. And we will declare the goodness of Jesus to people whose eyes are veiled by the God of this age. So that they can see Jesus and how he's brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if any of that is speaking to you right now, just come forward. Let's pray for you. And um, there are some words as well, because God is always in the process of healing his church and speaking to us. And so from our prayer group this morning, there are a number of people that he singled out because he said the time for healing is now. So if anyone in this place is experiencing random headaches,